Welcome and thanks so much for tuning in today. Here's the thing, you guys. This is what you need to know about more Jody. I'm the girl who says what everyone is thinking, unapologetically myself, all the time. The goal of this podcast is to help you go unfiltered. We use so many covers to hide our true selves, and it's time to stop living your life according to what the ideal police think you should be doing and step into who you were created to be. More vulnerable, more authentic, and more free. You guys, I'm super excited for this episode today. I have Marg Lackmuth on the podcast. Marg is a retired nurse who worked in Nicaragua during the revolution, just like Hot Lips Houlihan from the show MASH when we were growing up. That's basically Marg. She also served marginalized people in the coldest and most desolate parts of Northern Canada in order to put her daughters through university. She's traveled to Pakistan and Sri Lanka with the Red Cross doing relief efforts. PTSD eventually led Marg to make the tough choice to stop traveling as a nurse. But make no mistake, serving and loving people is how Marg lives her life every day, and she's not stopping anytime soon. This conversation with Marg will fire you up and make you want to live with purpose and passion at any age. Resilience is always possible. I know you will love this episode. Well, Marg, welcome to the More Jody podcast. Thanks for being on here today. I wanted to talk to you. I don't know very many details about your life. But you grew up with my mom, which is super cool, in small town, Alberta, Round Hill, which a lot of my Alberta listeners probably haven't even heard of. But I was very intrigued because I knew, I knew that I had watched this, the, the show MASH when I was a little girl, and there was a Hot Lips Houlihan on there, and my mom said, I didn't know you looked like her at the time. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I do, but anyway, yeah. You're still a hot blonde. So I didn't know that my mom meant it quite literally, but I knew that you had been a nurse in war zones and I was intrigued by that. And then she told me that you became a widow at a young age. And I was like, what? And I knew you were still moving and shaking, you know, in your later sixties. So I just wanted to have, um, have a conversation with you that would give women hope for wherever they are in their life. If they've, you know, just gone through something hard, if they are looking to make a change in, you know, how they spend their later years or after kids or their career, like anything, you could literally Mm -hmm. give us so much wisdom, Mark. So that's why I wanted to talk to you was to kind of understand a little bit about your journey and see that it'll give other women. I know it'll give other women hope because I hear it and I'm like fired up about what the rest of my life's going to look like. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? Okay. Well, I left home at 17 and took up um, nursing. I wanted to be a nurse really bad. I'd always wanted to be a nurse. So I went to the Royal Alec in Edmonton and did the three-year program. Um, met my husband hitchhiking and we ended up getting married shortly after. Is he from Alberta too? He's from Alberta. He was in Edmonton. Oh, okay. And so he was going, he, we had made a plan. We weren't going to have kids. We were going to just um, do work with marginalized populations. So we both, we were all peaceniks, old hippies. So we were both going to head out. I would do healthcare. He would do clean water because he was an engineer. Oh, I love Um, that. Yeah. But somewhere along the line, I ended up getting pregnant before I had enough, what I felt enough experience to go overseas. Um, I ended up pregnant and had a set of twins. So that stopped my travel almost. Um, then when the girls were in school, um, the, the war, the Contra were fighting in Nicaragua. So we did, I decided I was going to go and help. So I took 20 cases of medical supplies 
and headed off to Nicaragua and um, stayed there for about six weeks. And then the Contra moved in. We were right up near the Honduras border. Contra moved in. We got out luckily, but they killed off all the people in our village. And it was Aww. devastating. I, I, was, I was pretty shell-shocked for a while. Um, and so I didn't do anything more in terms of that. I did some work on some of the reservations in Alberta as nursing, as well as my other job, my regular job that made the money, but I did the volunteer stuff. And then I ended up, um, he got sick when I was doing my, I, was, I finished my bachelor's, was working on my master's when he got sick and ended up with um, leukemia. They gave him six weeks to live. He was 38 years old. Um, girls, my twin daughters were 12. And he felt he was too young to die. So we did everything we could to support him and work through it. And he ended up living for four and a half years. Wow. And I had one semester left in my master's when he died. And before he died, he said, you've got to finish. So I did. Now, we had always wanted to go um, third world countries and work. And when, when he died, I felt my life was over. I didn't know what I was ever going to do, but I just knew that my life was done. And my daughters are pretty brilliant. And one of them said, well, mom, I know if you'd have died, dad would still have done that kind of work because he really believed in it. Yeah. And I thought, well, I did too. Like, I can't lose that passion just because he's not here to support me anymore. Yeah. After um, he died, we ha he had no insurance or anything. So all of a sudden I'm stuck with two 16 year olds who were in grade 11 and a mortgage. And so I had three jobs, nursing jobs, trying to make ends meet. Yeah, in my master's, I also did my midwifery. So I was doing births. I was working in a oh. walk-in and I was working at University of Calgary Sessional. And um, it, was, it was crazy. And um, so I thought, well, I don't want the girls. They've lost their dad. I don't want them to have to work and go to school. So I went um, to the Northwest Territories, to the Inuvik region. And I started working up there because it fulfilled my dream of working with remote, marginalized populations like First Nations, right. as well as I could make a lot of money because there's nothing to spend it on up there. Right. right? <laughs> but I did. That's, that's so smart. I went up there for four years while the girls were um, in university. I went to the north and I cut, they lived in my house so they didn't have to pay rent. They took care of my bills and stuff. And then I just would come home few times a year to visit them or fly them up to visit me in the summer and it worked so in 2000 when they graduated from university and I was totally burnt out by then because I'd moved from a community health nurse to being the director of the hospital and, right. all, and all the communities in the NWTs or in the Inuvik region of the NWT so I was burnt out and came home to Calgary. The Red Cross starts calling and calling, wanting to recruit me because somebody had given them my name. And I didn't want to do that, but I went, I went for the interview. And that's a good up, choice. Always do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> ended up in uh, their training program in Ottawa. And then that fall in September, I took my daughters, they, they had graduated. I took them to India for a month. And then I turned them loose. For, they, I left them in Southeast Asia for a year. And, and I got back to Calgary a month later and the Red Cross wanted me to go to Sri Lanka to the, there had been a 25 year civil war there it was still ongoing and they asked if I would go. So I did. So I spent, yeah, I spent, uh, 
10 months, I think it was the first time, and then came back to Calgary, went again for a second mission. Um, it was pretty traumatic with, you know, lots of shelling and bombing that just about made you crazy. But we did really good work. So yeah, came back, started a, um, I decided I wasn't gonna go again. So I started a nursing program for Aboriginal students in Calgary and got uh, LPN nursing students and got that going. And then I got a call, the tsunami had hit in Southeast Asia. The Red Cross wanted me to come within 48 hours to uh, respond. Found somebody to take over my Aboriginal class and I was on a plane within about 24 hours of being told to come. And I wow. uh, was gonna go to Indonesia, but the Sri Lankans, the Tamil Tigers, they saw my name on the list and they wanted me back. So I ended up going back to the Northern part of Sri Lanka. And that had its own stressors because, I mean, a lot of dead bodies, a lot of destruction, but also I was put in an area where there were a lot of landmines. And so I had to do assessments to make sure that we weren't going to set up a health center and have people coming to get health and then stepping on a landmine and losing a limb or their oh life. My. So yeah. that was pretty stressful. Did that, came back from that after a little more than three months, got back teaching in my program and then got a call a few months later, they had the major earthquake in Pakistan. Right. So I ended up going to Pakistan for a little over 10 months. And it was probably about nine months too long because there were over 100,000 dead in that earthquake. And the post-traumatic stuff from that, I think still hangs on a little bit. Um, yeah. Would you say so that, that that's like what was the hardest? Because obviously, all of it, like Sri Lanka, even in Nicaragua, like you've had a lot of that. Like, I can't even fathom it. I watch a movie with war zone scenes and I just, like the anxiety, I can't imagine living in that, especially because your initial, the Nicaragua one where the people in the village were killed. That yeah. is like, were you whisked away the night before or something? That same day. Same day. So you were evacuated. We got us out in the morning and by, uh, we got photos the day after with everybody dead. Yeah. And you would know those people. Oh God. Yeah. 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 That like makes me, that breaks my heart. And then, I mean, with Sri Lanka was, there were, with the bombing and shelling, you'd, we'd go in as soon as it had, the bombs stopped or the shelling stopped and we'd help the people that were left set up a new place to live or whatever we had to do deal with the injured, the dead. Um, so that had that stress. We, I being the nurse, I was the only nurse. So I was responsible usually for moving dead bodies. So people killed in the conflict in terms of military or the catters from the Tamil Tigers, you had to move their bodies. So they'd go either to, they'd go back to their home, their side of the front lines. And I was way behind the front lines. So that was incredibly traumatic. Yeah. They, were all, they were all young people. They were all, you know, teenagers, uh, early twenties, kids who had been born in war and were never going to, well, not after being killed, of course, they won't know, but they, that's all they had ever known. Wow. Because the whole infrastructure up there had been destroyed. So they hadn't really had the schooling. There wasn't the medical facilities. They had nothing. There were no roads, really. What causes more PTSD for you in those situations? Is it dealing with all of those dead young people? Or would it be being an area where you know you're at risk of dying at any moment? No, I didn't worry about me at all. I don't worry about me. I, I follow a Buddhist philosophy. 
and it's that non-attachment and okay being able to go because i'm i don't want to be attached to the to stuff i don't want to be super attached to my children i am yeah but i know that if i'm not around they're still going to be okay and it's that knowledge that you learn to live with right so right? it was more the dealing with the the people the who'd lost their lives shelling. i've got hearing loss because of the constant shelling um yeah i think just it just accumulates i don't think I think it was the death of my husband was added in there. I think it got more and more. So with Pakistan, there were a lot of dead bodies, but there was a lot of trauma with just bad, bad injuries. Um, and starting from the ground up to, to regain some kind of normalcy for those people. And then at the end of it, um, I was, um, I had some problems with a co a Pakistani co coworker because they didn't respect women. They liked the job I was oh. doing, but there were we were there to tempt them, right? That's what why West Right. And that right. got really bad. That it got really bad. And I that was that was incredibly traumatic. And I yeah. had a hard time. I had more trouble with that, I think, than than all the deaths that you saw, you know? Yeah, I think, but there was good stuff. There was a lot of good stuff there too. Um, because all the Red Cross workers, they come from all over the world, but we're all there for humanitarian reasons. Well, Which is so us, beautiful. Yeah, none of us are there to get rich because you will never get rich working with an organization. One of their big tenants of their whole society is volunteerism. So, right. I mean, we didn't spend money, but we sure didn't make a lot either. Right. It's just not that kind of a thing. So well, in, in those in those situations, Mark, where um, because of your level of education, when you're over there, were you the most like like you said in some of those situations, you were the only nurse. Mm -hmm. But I feel like in a lot of situations, you'd almost be like a doctor because you have a oh, master's, right? Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, a lot of the the local doctors that I worked with in Sri Lanka, I was far past them. And so you have to learn, I always called it manipulation 101. You had to convince them that they were so brilliant that, right. you, that I would say, I need you to help me do this. Mm -hmm. But at the same time as I'm teaching the local people something, I knew they were learning too because they're interpreting for me or they're going to yeah. help explain it in different wording than yeah. I would use. So yeah, like I taught a suturing course to the local people working in the health center in Pakistan. And uh, the doctor wasn't going to help because uh, he says, oh, no, you're a nurse. You, you do it. And I, and I thought, I got to teach him because the floor cleaner was putting in sutures some of the time, a lot of the time. And the infection rate oh. was through the roof. And so I thought, how do I do this? So that's what I did. I told him, I said, you know, I really need some help teaching this uh, class because there's so many um, Pakistani healthcare workers here. I can't give them a lot of attention individually so could you help and you teach them too and he said oh okay i'll do that yeah so got chicken from the market and made big dashes in it and taught everybody how to clean it and how to put it back put the pieces all back together and he he never helped with anything he just sutured and sutured and sutured it was hilarious after That's when we so talked about funny. it after i like to call that i have to do that with my staff sometimes like as a yeah. way of engaging them i'm like I, yeah. you just need to massage the situation Exactly. I'm going to massage the situation and I need you, I need you to rise up and help that help me with this. Right. Or yeah. Lead in this way. That's super funny. You can't, you can't get 
angry with them because they don't have that knowledge or skill because they haven't had to well they haven't been able to get those resources for them to to go to school and do the things that i've been able to do right especially in sri lanka you know they we had uh, people working as doctors who had maybe done um oh i don't know what they'd even be equivalent to here an orderly maybe wow and and so you know this it, yeah it was a problem but um we sort of did a training program there too i did a big training pro program in sri lanka and we got people qualified to do more to yeah. help with cholera outbreaks to to help look at the things that are there and that's what we taught around rather than teaching them the three years of something you'd get here we broke it down into six weeks so focusing on the things that they encountered most of the time yeah giving them the skills and leaving them better than when you went better than when we were there or yeah or when we got there yeah you're right so then after that i came back from pakistan and um my daughters had moved to vancouver and they did not want me staying in calgary because i was really struggling with the ptsd and the red cross was giving me lots of uh, counseling but it wasn't doing much so i came out to vancouver to do a two-week yoga course and after it finished, I was going to head back to Calgary and the girls had found a realtor and wanted me to buy a place out here. So we went, we looked at a bunch of places and the one I really didn't want, um, the realtor kept hounding me. She was calling me two or three times a day in Calgary to get this place. So I finally, that's when I bought the lodge out at Weir's Beach. So it was a big six bedroom B&B. So I ended up with this horrific mortgage and um, I don't know. I think the post-traumatic stuff made me make this impulsive decision that if I'd had more time to think about it, I wouldn't have made it, but I did it and ran it, got it going and ran it for 12 years and just sold it a year ago and bought my dream home. And now I, and then I was teaching here too, to make ends meet. I taught nursing at UVic because this mortgage was so horrific. And when there's no uh, tourists and stuff in the winter, it was hard going. So I would t teach from September till April and the rest of the time it was full steam ahead at the lodge. So tell my listeners where you live now. <laughs> now I live up in um, the Highlands, which is just outside of Victoria, halfway up a mountain. I'm a hundred meters from Mount Work Provincial Park. Okay. Or, yeah, I think it's a Provincial Park. Um, yeah, so I'm there all the time. We walk to the summit two or three times a week usually. I'm right on a lake. I've got my own little dock. There's about, I think, 13 homes on this lake. Some people are there full time. Some are only there for the summer. And it's magic. It's magic. So it's total magic. Yeah. No street, no street lights. It's just, and so quiet. You can go to bed and see the stars and hear nothing. Well, I always, I don't want people to move here, but I want people to move here. So, I know. Right? I like, that too. I like that too. I love it here. I, I just love it. Yeah. yeah. I always say like, we're, I walk into the office and I'm like, you guys, it's just another day in paradise. And they're like rolling their eyes. They're like, it's winter. I'm like, it is not, this is nothing. I know. Love I, it. Say too. I mean, after Alberta winters and when I was, when I was doing my master's, I was, my husband was sick in the hospital. He was really, really sick. He'd had a bone marrow transplant, but I was commuting to U of A. That's where I did my master's. Oh, wow. From Calgary? Yeah. Because Alberta, I mean, their midwifery wow. program was the best in the country, pretty much. And I wanted to do my master's along with midwifery. And so, yeah, so I commuted. So I, I learned to be a really good driver on snow and ice on that number one highway. Or no, not number one. Number two. 
number two did the number one a lot too but no yeah it, got, it was crazy but it's a good know, life it was yeah a crazy but a, all my life is perfect I yeah think. it's very fulfilling and I think too I think the more adversity someone faces I always say that makes the best people my favorite people always have the best stories and the best grit because mm right? You, you're just, you can't be anything but thankful after what you've seen and endured. Yeah. Right. And that, well, that was why I did it too, is because, um, we are, I believe we're so fortunate to have been born in Canada or I to know. live in Canada. We've got an infrastructure. We can pretty much get what we need here. Yeah. And I think most of us have a pretty good standard of living. And so for me, I always wanted to do work in the developing world because I feel that most of the things, all the stuff we think we need, we get at the expense of other people. I yeah. mean, even the bananas, right? Yeah. Um, you look when you, well, yeah, like in Nicaragua with the, that war was all about the resources they had, the bananas, the sugar and the minerals. And yeah, it's just, to me, it's, we don't, I don't believe we really deserve what we have here, but we have it but I felt I needed to do my part in paying back to have lived this life, to live, be born here. Do you I could have born there. Oh, totally, totally. Could have been yeah. born anywhere. And, yeah, exactly. and do, would you say, like, it occurs to me, and I don't know if I'm off base or not, but do you feel that you used serving as a way to heal or is serving just like something you feel called to do or is it part of because it was your husband passed away you already were a woman of service you were already passionate about first nations people and marginalized people and stuff so that's obviously part of you but is that part of your healing or is that just something you know you're made for uh, no i think it was part of my personal healing too my my childhood wasn't a perfect one and i had a lot of that's why i left home at 17 and i think it, that was part of it. I, I never felt that I was worthwhile or that I was worth anything. And I think going into nursing was partly prompted. I wanted to show that I did have value. And wow. I think all the work I've done has always been for that. I mean, going back to school when I was older to do my master's, I mean, I was in my forties. Um, was because I had to prove that I could do it, that I, that I was smart, that I could, that I could do things, you know, other than just, I don't know. Do you see now that your worth was there all along? Oh yeah, I do. I do. I do know that, but it's just, um, sometimes I, I do think about why I've done what I've done and, and the word you used was passion. And yeah, I always believe that you have to be passionate about what you do or find something else to do. And I tell yeah. that to my student nurses. If you're working in an area of the hospital, like, because most of them will end up in a hospital. I tried yeah. to get lights. I taught global health. So I really tried to get the light bulbs to light up about doing this type of work. Yeah. And I always said, when you're working in an area of the hospital or overseas or whatever you're doing in nursing, if there's no longer passion, then you're only going to be a mediocre nurse. So leave it and find something else to do. Work in a different area or leave nursing. It's yeah. otherwise you burn out, right? And so that's sort of what I've done. I've 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 worked from child psychiatry in child psychiatry, labor and delivery. Um, I've worked in a oh a huge 
list of different nursing areas until I felt qualified to go overseas right. because over there they don't you don't get to work with a specific right. group of people. You work with everybody. You're doing a birth on the side of a mountain, yeah. you know. You're um, like, no, 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 no. I don't do pediatrics. I just do right. Like you don't get to pick and choose. Not at all. When you get a cholera outbreak and they bring you two babies that are pretty much flat, like not responding at all anymore. Uh, you don't have to, you don't think, oh my God, I'm not a pediatric nurse. You've got to pull out some tools from somewhere yeah. to, to be able to deal with it. Yeah. Oh, I, well, do you have a favorite? Do you have like of all the different areas of nursing, do you have a favorite area that you've been in? Oh, I think, oh, it would either be labor and delivery. Like I love doing births. I love getting my hands on a pregnant belly and oh yeah, where the head is and where everything else is. I love doing that. But I think um, I think the community work in the in the Northwest Territories was hugely really? rewarding. Yeah, yeah, because they have so many problems, right? Yeah. From not enough heat to no clean water, whatever it is, they've got a lot of issues that they have to deal with, and helping them figure out with you how we can work on them rather than going in there as a Southern person right. and telling them what, how we do healthcare down South, it was sitting with them and figuring out what they felt their health needs were. And then how are we going to meet them? And I love that. Like you're sitting beside them. You're not sitting facing them. We're not, we're not doing for, we're doing with. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. And there you really saw your impact on, did you get to know a lot of the community in the Northwest Territories? I still hear from some. Oh, do you? I left in 2000 and I, I just had an email a few days ago from one of them. What, oh, what I from love that. I'd gotten to know. Yeah. yeah. I love that. And, and shifting a little bit to now, I have to say one of my dreams, which I don't think I really thought of until I heard about you was the, I dream of having like a, a small, we have one little um, Airbnb in our basement right now. And I dream cause I, I like make Nanaimo bars and I just make it like so fun. And my dream is to have a small inn like you had. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, that's one of the interesting things too, is it was when I heard about you that I was like, that's it. That's kind of one of the things I'd like to do eventually is to have a little in like that. So it's kind of neat just how, how the inspiration. That was nothing I would do again. No, hey. 24 hours of work and not always, um, sometimes guests can be really unreasonable, really demanding. Um, you have no time for yourself. Mm. Right. You're at people's beck and call. Check-in could be from four till nine, but you have people showing up at one in the morning and right. expecting you to jump. Right. right? Um, you would say bre breakfast was between eight and 10, but you'd have people coming down at 11 wanting their breakfast then. Right. Yeah. yeah. It almost destroyed um, my relationship with my daughters because they felt that they couldn't come visit me because all I did was work. And if I wasn't downstairs with guests i was on the phone doing reservations or something because it was a one woman gong show right, right. i was doing it all myself yeah. <laughs> well that's good it's a fast trip for burnout but i didn't have a choice i couldn't burn out i couldn't yeah. stop because i had well i started with over a million dollar mortgage so right. i didn't have an option and when i when i'm backed into a corner i'll fight till, till i get it together and then i'll break down later yeah you figure you figure it out when you need to. So yeah, in some ways, yeah. and, and you had a lot of um, stress prep 
for a really long time. But those mm. 12 years, was that uh, like, what was the last thing you did as a nurse before the 12 years with the inn? What was the last Red Cross Pakistan. job? Pakistan. I came back from Pakistan right. and within uh, two months, I bought the lodge. Right. And you had said that because that's where you said you probably wouldn't have if you hadn't been in such a kind of yeah. shaken place. Yeah. What a journey. So what was the best part of working with the Red Cross? Everybody that comes, no matter what country they're from, like because the Red Cross has got societies in, I think it's something like 93 different countries now. Um, everybody you work there with there ha has come because they have the same humanitarian beliefs. Right. Right. So you're working with people that are like you. Yeah. We were all there for the same reason to help people who were in desperate need of help. And with the, with the, I was with the ICRC, which is the International Committee of the Red Cross based in Geneva. And they deal wherever there's conflict. So even with Pakistan, I was in, it was considered a conflict zone because I was something like 29 kilometers from the line of control between India and Pakistan up in Kashmir. So that area had been landmined. And so, yeah, so it was still considered um, a conflict zone. And there were times, like I was put under house arrest for a while while I was there by the by one group of people. And what does that mean? Like, like because you were... House. Yeah, yeah. You take your... You just don't go out of your house. When they because you, you, were, you weren't safe? It wasn't safe. Oh, it wasn't safe. Okay. Yeah. I thought maybe you'd been misbehaving. <laughs> No, oh, no, 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 no. They, they perceived that I had a female field officer and they had decided that I was um, going to try to convert her to Christianity instead of Islam. And, um, and they, had, they had threatened to throw acid in her face or harm her or me. And so we were all, she stayed on our compound until we got it sorted out and just took negotiation. We always have part of the team works with international humanitarian law and other people. Everybody works with, with every different aspect of doing a mission there. And so every, you know, we got it all sorted out and wow, really come and go again, but uh, you're like, I'm not here to convert anybody. Yeah. 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 I'm not, oh. I'm, not a, I'm not a preacher by any stretch. So yeah. oh, that's interesting. What were the toughest obstacles that you faced? That's, this is a really big question. I don't know if you can unpack this, but what are the literal or mental bridges that were the biggest you've had to overcome along the way? Hmm. I think the biggest struggle in all those years was the financial one. Of, mm. of making figuring out what I could make do with and what I could make do without um, right because it's a big step to do that um, the, then another one was um, trying to take my Buddhist beliefs and apply them to leaving my girls behind so what right? would the Buddhist beliefs be around that well because um, they don't belong to me I've okay. had these daughters but they're not you don't attach to them Okay. And they're, they're bright. They, they have good jobs. They, they are meaningful members of society. There's, I don't, they didn't need me anymore. Yeah. They, were, they were in their early twenties, I guess, 21, 22 when I started going. Right. So, so yeah, I don't know, maybe they were a little bit, yeah, they were about eight, maybe 18 or 19. <laughs> so no, no, I went to Nuvik first. So they were about 21 when I went on my first mission. Well, and I think a lot of women, 
like I am a Christian, so I feel like my kids belong to the Lord, but in the mm-hmm. same way, <clears throat> in a very similar way to exactly what you would say is I'm like, mm-hmm. I offer them back. Like they are not mine. Like I, I love them like you would your girls. Yeah, yeah. Right. Obviously. Yeah. But I also see that like, um, like, like you said, like they'll be okay. And, yeah, yeah. and I think a lot of women almost use that sometimes as a crutch or oh, there's I, like, for, right. For a lot of things. Exactly. Yeah. And that yeah. attachment to, and I think our kids need to see us live brave lives yeah. because it yeah. shows them, right? Like, and so that's where I feel like if we think like even how it's our job to help them find independence, help them um, not tell them what to do all the time, but teach them to make good choices and things like that. But it's not our job to helicopter over them, right? Yeah, and so right. that's that's interesting. Like, so you said financial and then you said letting your girls mm-hmm. knowing they'd be okay, mm-hmm. you know, when you left them on their own. Yeah. And I guess other big obstacles were while I was there, one of the big ones in, in Pakistan was we were, it was tent city. We lived in a tent just like all the local people did. But the hard thing was the, the, the land would move. There'd be little mini earthquakes for about six months. And you didn't know whether you should get out of your tent try to get to higher ground and face being looked at by every Pakistani man in the area, or do you stay there and risk being sliding down that hill into the river below, you know, cause we're in the mountains. Um, oh, that sounds scary to me. So, so that part was scary. Sometimes you'd be on the road going to a even more remote area to help because there'd been a landslide from one of these little quakes and um, the road in front of you would wash away suddenly. And, just go and you'd you'd sit there in your Toyota we drove Toyota Land Cruisers and we'd sit there in this Land Cruiser and I'd look at the driver and I'd say what do we do and the roads are so narrow you have to take in the mirrors on the side and fold them in right. to the, the vehicle before we can pass right yeah and one day a car went over the bank because they the road was just too narrow and they tried to push it and they were all killed because you're going down a couple hundred feet I've seen those like in so, the yeah. movies yeah Exactly like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So some of so those were some of the physical things or the that just made you a little bit crazy and kept you awake at night sometimes. Yeah. But I don't know, in Sri Lanka, I didn't I never really worried about um my own safety. We were pretty we had our we had well that's one thing about the Red Cross. They do protect their workers. Well, they used to. It's harder now, and our CM, or sorry, our Red Cross establishments do get bombed and shot up now. But but when I was doing it, it was a little bit safer. I think I'm not so sure how much of it I would do now. Well, I won't now because I'm getting too old. Um, <laughs> I don't think I can think as fast as I could back At then. some point, you have to slow down, Mark. Right? You like do. at That's some point. <laughs> yeah. Even though you might not totally feel like it, were you were you always? Like growing up, were you pretty fearless? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like, it's incredible to me. I want to talk about fear for a second. I have um, a friend who grew up on an Aboriginal reserve by Brentwood Bay, like pretty close to you down Mm -hmm. there. And she said something a a week ago, we were having dinner and she said, she'll watch movies. So she grew up, I think her entire childhood um, on the reserve. And she said, you know, it's interesting when I watch movies and they try to give people a feeling of fear um, from whatever their, you know, their storyline. And she said, you just don't, some people just 
like they don't know how to create what I felt. And mm. she, it was really interesting because she, and just the way she said it, like gave me shivers. She says, you just don't know fear until you're sleeping in a trailer by yourself on, on a first nations reserve. And you're like an eight year old girl and you haven't seen your mom in eight days. Yeah. You know, break into that trailer. Well, and she said the door didn't have a lock and she'd have to push all the furniture up to the door. And she said, she said now, cause I kind of, I'm like obsessed with like learning about people. And I just said, mm -hmm. what was, what's the thing you remember the, that's still the hardest. And she said her biggest, um, the most PTSD she feels is when it's cold. She said, oh. because I was terrified to go get firewood. So mm -hmm. I would be alone in the trailer with everything barricaded to the door. Her mom was gone. And she said, and I would lay there freezing. Mm -hmm. And so she said, and so a lot of times if she gets cold, she feels so alone yeah. because yeah. of what that does in her head. And then she said she was also terrified of rats. Mm -hmm. And she said she would wake up and there'd be a rat staring at her on her bed or she'd hear them on the floor. And so it's interesting when someone says, you don't, you don't know fear until you've known X or whatever that is. Oh, you're, so you're right. And I identify with all of those because I had that same thing happen up in the territories with middle of the night, minus 40 and no lock on the door. We lived in trailers and some guy trying to break in and me breaking my back against uh, a little short wall and my feet against the door to keep him out. Yeah. It was a nightmare. Once. And the rats. Yeah. Oh, I the rats them. are like, I hate rats too. They're like, they're like the size of a big cat in some places. And yeah, I woke up one day with one on my chest in the middle oh. of the night. I just, I freaked. I just freaked. Oh, they I they were worse than watching the, uh, the soldiers <laughs> when, when, you, when you'd be driving somewhere and they'd be marching along the side of the road with their AK-47s and you'd think, oh my God, some people would just, I had one nurse that had come from Vancouver and she would just panic every time she saw these catters marking or uh, marching. And I would say there's far worse things. Having a, waking up to a rat was far oh, worse. Oh, I would pick the rat. <laughs> no, no, not me. No, no. I figured I could talk my way out of it if I had to with those guys. But. Yeah, not, not a rat. A rat's not there for the conversation. No, not at all. No. Right? But I think, I think it makes me wonder with everything you've experienced, a lot of the things that literally a, a lot of women, their worst nightmare is their husband dying and leaving them alone to raise their kids. Yeah. And that happened. And that then happened. next worst thing, being in a war zone and knowing all these villagers being whisked out the day before and then finding out the entire village is everyone's dead. Yeah. Right. And so I'm curious about what experiencing or like the fear of men um, in, you know, a foreign country looking at me as an object or, you know, being at risk for being taken and trafficked or a lot of things that happen in a lot of different countries in the world. Um, those are some of my worst fears. And you've, you've been in, you've been around those things. I didn't worry about that. I dress the way the women there dress. I would, you know, I'd wear a straw or kameez or whatever. I was kept my dupath over my head um, until I would be working in um, a really intense situation. I'd have to sometimes throw it off and hang it on an IV pole or something because mm -hmm. it was in the way. Um, but most of the time we covered and we tried to fit in. I mean, they could still tell we were different because our faces were different, but ever the way we talked. You know, we, your beautiful blonde hair and your- Blonde Urdu, so um, yeah. So yeah, there was those kinds of things, but you just don't make a lot of eye contact. You're not, you're not the same as you are here. Right. Because you make eye contact and that can be interpreted as um, a come on. 
And so you've got to be, you've got to take care of yourself. And I think dressing to modestly mm-hmm. gets you a lot further than thinking, oh, we can wear our Western clothes because you're, no. you're setting yourself up. You know, no. that, ha- that happened a lot though. No. Oh, well, and that's where I'm like, but you face some of those things that are a lot of people's worst fears. So now when, when the world right now is very fear driven, Oh God, so, yeah. right. And it's driving me a little nuts because I'm a person who with inside me, if you tell me to be afraid, I'm going to be like, I'm not afraid. And I yeah. just, I don't want any, the thought of anyone trying to scare me is like one of my biggest like I will put up a wall. So as a person who's experienced actually terrifying and dangerous things, how do you face fear now? And how do you feel in this situation when you see people being so fear-driven? Like what would you want to tell people who are living in fear right now? It's not all about you. Instead of looking at it as being scared that you're going to get COVID and being really scared because I think a lot of people are, Mm-hmm. It's thinking about what can I do to make sure that I don't get it or pass it to somebody else, right? I try to always think of the other, the other person. So to empower yourself kind of in a different way. Uh, like I'm not, yeah, like I, I, as soon as I started being where they were starting to keep people, telling people not to go out much, I started making masks for people. And I started doing uh, just different things. Um, I still do a lot of stuff, but I don't expose myself to the risk of getting COVID, but I'm not fearful of it either. Right. I still take my dog for long walks in the park. There's a lot of people up there a lot of the time, but it's still, um, yeah, there's no way I'm going to live in fear. It's, it's a wasted, it's too hard on your adrenals and everything else. I ended up blowing my adrenals in Pakistan and I really don't want to do that again. So no, I really try not to, to live with fear. Well, I think, I think it's It's not worth it. No. And life's just going to happen for you. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. You can't, you can't fear what's going to happen because it's not here yet. Right. And it's not going to add an hour to your life. Yeah. Live the moment. Have a good life. I love that. Um, What do you want the world to know about your story? Oh, I guess that we're born we're born in a, we've all been born in a country or, or live in a country that is free. Like we don't have wars here. Um, so far we haven't had a major earthquake or we don't have the kinds of disasters <laughs> yeah. that they have in other countries, the tsunamis and the earthquakes and the wildfires and stuff. I mean, wildfires are getting to be more of a problem, but um, I think we're very, very fortunate. And I think we need to, um, I think we need to keep positive about all the good in our lives mm-hmm. rather than to focus on, on the stuff that we don't have. And I think we need to stop focusing on stuff and what we can accumulate, the big house, the big car, all the stuff. And just think about being grateful for what we've got, yeah. you know, because the biggest thing is being free. We yeah. Traffic, you know, we've, we're able to get our kids educated. We're able to feed our kids. So we need to be grateful for that and just get on with living today. That's, That's beautiful. That's, I also think in other people's shoes too. Yeah. And think about the people that haven't had it the way we have. Right. Yeah. We're pretty, we're pretty spoiled here. We're um, yeah. Well, and if there is an earthquake, I'm coming down to your house. Well, I, <laughs> I've got all my earthquake bags here. Yeah. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> I feel like you'd take really good care of me, whether I had to deliver a baby, whether yeah. no matter what my problem was. So I'm going to just drive about an hour and a half south and come to your house. Okay, if there's, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. There's a bigger, I'll bring muffins or something. Like I'm kind of helpful Fair that enough. way. Well, I've got a big kitchen. You can just cook them here when you get there. There you go. So I definitely would, would head down there. Um, but I love that. I think the other thing I think is that, like you said, having all the stuff, having all the things, like how does that serve you? What does that add to your life? Like it really doesn't. All that stuff adds clutter. And stress. Like you a worry about how you can keep it all. You know, I, 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 I used to teach yoga too. And mm -hmm. I, one of the yoga courses I took at one point in time in my life, um, that's what they talked about was the clutter we put in our lives. And all it does is cause us anxiety. Like we, we tend to think that people who are poor and have nothing have a hard life, but we have just as hard a life, I think, sometimes worrying about how we can keep all this stuff. Yeah. You know, I look at yeah. Alberta right now where they're so worried because the oil industry is falling apart and they're so worried about they're going to lose their homes and their cars. Well, maybe they were living beyond their means. Yes. Yes. You know? and, and I, you know, I always think about when I, when people ask me, well, are, are you a stressed or about this like do you like they want to know about how I could go and how I could do that and I said well you also have to think is my glass half empty or half full mm -hmm. and I like to think mine's half full but the other thing you have to add to that is how big is the glass yeah like what are you trying to fill up here right yeah that's interesting yeah I've and never so, heard that I love it's it. not just about how empty or full or how much stuff you've got that's not what the issue is. It's to be happy. I think you have to make sure you've, you're looking at the right size glass. Yeah. And I think being, being, being aware of what life looks like outside of your own bubble, right? Because I think oh we can get so petty, myself included, right? Judgmental. Like judgmental. Yeah. yeah. And, and the more I always say, if you're, if you struggle with some, some, if, if you struggle with a type of person, a type of culture, get in proximity with them because proximity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like change. I'm actually listening to, I'm, I'm doing an audible book right now called seeking Allah, finding Jesus. And it's this guy. Oh, it's the best. I'm only, I'm like halfway through it, but I have so much more respect for the Muslim faith than I had. Yeah. Oh, I do too. I've read the Quran. I've, uh, I had a copy of that when I was in Pakistan and that's what I would do at night. I'd read it to try yeah. to figure out where this is coming from. The, the Islamic people are not bad people. No. Some of them are terrorists, but I've known a lot of Christians who I could label a terrorist as well. Totally. Right? Or the KKK is founded in Christianity. Yeah. Like there's lots of terrible yeah. fundamentalists, right? Yeah. But it, and it's interesting. So that's one of my things is for right now, if I can't be in proximity with someone, I'm going to read a book by someone who, you know, mm -hmm. has experienced some of this. And so I think that's where expanding our horizons outside of our bubble changes your perspective too, on what you're thankful for, what you have, right. Um, when you, when you hear a story about someone who's, you know, experienced some of your worst fears, you know, and, and they're thriving all of a sudden mm -hmm. you're like, maybe the worst thing that I think could happen would happen and it wouldn't kill me. And I would, I would thrive because I'm pushed to the edge and at the edge is where our growth is. I was just going to say that you need to look at what am I learning from this? Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'm a little bit scared or maybe I shouldn't be here, but I am here. And what can I learn? Yeah. Because, and I think, yeah, if we can, um, 
if we can look at ourselves before, because I don't believe that everybody can do the things I did at that level. Um, no, not even that level. Uh, I don't think everybody has the ability to just pack up and go to a third world country and start working, right? Right. Um, financially, or they've got family that they just can't leave. They've got commitments that they don't, or they don't feel safe to go. Right. But you can still do those kinds of things locally. Like yes. I did a lot of work when we had Syrian refugees come here to, to Victoria. I will, I just sign, like, well, I do all, do, I do volunteer work with the Red Cross all the time. And I think people, women in their sixties who are struggling, find something to do. Yeah. Don't, don't sit back and think, oh, I can't do this. I'm getting older. What else? I mean, yeah, I've got some friends who don't do much now because oh, I'm getting too old for that, but no, still do it because there's always going to be people around you that are far worse off than you are. So do an act of kindness for them. There's little things you can do. Um, there's a group in town here that I've uh, been talking to where they make um, clothing and um, diapers and uh, baby layettes to send to the developing world where they have nothing. And I love that. Women, they sit knit or they, they, came, they taught my uh, university students one day, one of them came in and taught them how to take old sheets, rip them up into um, lengths and roll them for bandages because that's what I was doing in Sri Lanka. I'd buy saris in the market and tear them up. And oh, we'd use wow. it for bandages. We didn't have sterile bandages. And you can do that. And yeah. then you feel good about yourself. So it's yeah. sort of sitting back, reflecting on your strengths. What are you good at? and finding yeah. somewhere you can share that with. Teaching in a kindergarten, like going in and mm -hmm. reading to little kids or working in a school where they've got um, kids that are maybe ADD or right. different diagnosis where they can't, they're hard to blend into the mainstream. Work yeah. with those kids, volunteer. I think volunteering yeah. is one of the best things out there. Or holding babies at the hospital or right. Right. Little Going to the SPCA yeah. and walking a dog. Yeah, oh, that's like the best. I know there's so many things we can do. I, I'm just not one to sit home and wallow in self-pity or yeah. I'm just going to live today because I might not have tomorrow. So I'm going to have a good time today. Oh yeah, sister. I'm always up for a good time too. I think, I think one of my favorite things, um, one of my friends sits with people who are in, I think it's hospice or probably palliative care. And she just like held, holds their hand and chats with them. And I'm like, oh, that's just, it's my, one, my, my biggest passion is probably teenagers. I love, I want to just build into the lives, teenagers, especially teenage girls. Cause I think about, I had a great childhood. I have fabulous parents. Like there's so much that I feel like I was really whole, still had struggles and issues, but I feel like I still didn't figure out that I should ask myself like what my dreams are or what I really want to yeah. do or, and yeah. now I'm like, if we could instill that in girls when they're like 18, 17, yeah. 16, 20, that you're not, your whole goal in life isn't to be picked by a boy. Yeah. yeah. If you are, yeah. I love, I love being a mom, hundred percent love yeah. being a mom. And I was like built to be a mom, but at the same time, I'm like, I wished now that my focus when I was young hadn't been on is a guy going to like me? That's where my validation comes from. If yeah. he picks me, like that's the focus of young girls a lot of times. And that's where I, like, that's my thing is I want to work with teens as much as possible. Yeah. And, but everyone finding their own, we're all here for a different purpose and we're all different on purpose. 
And if we can all, you know, find our niche that just lights our soul on fire when we love those people. Exactly right. Find something that makes you passionate. Yeah. Go for it. Don't worry about, so many people worry about what has already happened in their past. Oh yeah, but this, the past is done. So move on. The the future isn't here yet. So just live today and figure out what, what you're good at and how you can put that to work. Yeah. What you can do with it, you know, get out there and shine. Yes. Dazzle people with your brilliance. Get out there and shine. And I have to say that is like, that is the best advice. Get out there and shine. And I think if you can love people, that's just what the world needs. The rewards you get are amazing. You know? Yeah. I still get little emails or messages. Like I had one from a guy in Germany just the other day who was my field officer in Sri Lanka for the first two missions. And he had to get out during the war. He escaped. A lot of Tamil men, most of them didn't. A lot of them were killed. And he got away and he's now in France. And he sent me this text saying, or no, I guess maybe it was on Facebook. I don't know. But he had sent me this message saying how much they had valued me in Sri Lanka. And I mean, it made me cry to think that they still, they remember, right? Yeah. I made a difference, I guess, is what it is. Because sometimes you don't think about making that you're affecting people the way as much as you do. Sometimes you just do things because you think this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Sometimes when it, when it comes back, it gets, sometimes I get a little emotional when I hear about it. It like makes me emotional and it's not my story. Like, I think um, this has been an amazing conversation. I know I'm not like, this sounds so stupid, but I just like want to thank you for loving the world. Like, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, know that's funny because um, years ago when I was doing a lot of yoga and stuff, I had taken a course on finding your life's purpose. I think it was titled "What Is My Purpose." I think it was out at Hollyhock on Cortez Island. Oh, and I'd gone to this. I used to go there a lot for stuff, and um, I came out of that workshop feeling that my life's pur- purpose was to teach people to love. To love others, but to teach people to love. Yeah. That's sort of what it came down to. And um, and that came up pretty much on every mission. Yeah. People would say that to me. And I guess it was in the back of my head, but I'd never consciously, I'd never told anybody that yeah. that's what my purpose is. It was just the way I lived my life, I guess. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a motto now. Yeah. Because yeah, you just love others and Love yourself, but love others too, you know? And you love others better when you love yourself. That's exactly right. Right? And I think um, one of my things a few years ago that I started praying all the time was I was like, what am I here for? Like, what is the, what am I really here for? And I I was at like a conference of some kind and, um, and it just came to me that it was like, it was like, God was like, you're here to show people where they shine. Mm-hmm. And it was like my fate because you light someone up, they will yeah. shine everywhere. You got it. Right. And, and I'd have bosses and stuff who are like, Hey, but like, is it, you know, is it the recognition? And I'm like, no, like, I don't care about any of that. But yeah. I was like, but if I could like have my staff, like recognize their value and their worth that they have outside of what they're doing here, it's already inside them. They're already complete. Exactly right. right. But I'm like, yeah. if I can like polish them or show them 
what they bring to the world because I see it in people like clear as a bell. I will meet someone and I'm like, Oh my gosh, they are just here. Like, like you, like you're just here to like spread your love around. And like you said, teach people how to love mm -hmm. people through your example. Mm -hmm. Like nothing makes me more joyful. And, you know, and I just, every time I meet someone, I'm like really paying attention for what it is. I think that they like bring to the world. And then I want to tell them because yeah. the world needs them to step into that and, you know, and God needs to use them that way. And that's kind of just, you know, how I see it. And so, yeah, I just, I love how you love everybody and the marginalized and how you don't, like you said, you don't judge. You're just there to, just to love and to serve them. And just, I'm so touched. I'm so touched by this conversation and I'm so thankful that you've lived this life and that you're still you know, down a little bit south of me, still yeah. serving and still loving and the world's better because Marg's here, I gotta well, say. We'll have to come down one one day and we'll meet in person. Yeah. Thanks so much, Marg. You're very welcome. Thank you. was so much fun. Thanks so much for being here. Please click subscribe, rate and review this podcast, share it with everyone you know, and I will be back here next week with more stories, more courage, more vulnerability, and just a little more Jody to brighten your day.